So, Brett, thank you for joining us. I know that you uh, had a long day, and we appreciate you taking the time to to speak with us tonight. Can you hear me okay, Brett? <laughs> Absolutely, and don't worry about the long day. This is what, what I live for. So let's rock this thing, and let's, uh, let's get some people feeling better about themselves using the game of baseball and other sports to, to open that door. That's great. We have a lot of coaches with teams on here tonight. So if any member of that group of young men have any questions or any parents that have any questions for Brett specifically, we encourage you to, again, raise your hand or request to speak, which again is located at the bottom of your cell phone, little heart icon. And if you click on that heart icon, you'll see probably five, six icons. One is a raise your hand to the five far right. Just hit that and we'll be able to bring you up as a speaker so that you can ask your question. Tonight's going to be a little introduction from my end, and then we're going to turn that over and let Brett do all the talking because he's our our special guest. I do want to emphasize, last week I received a question at the very end of our talk. And last week we spent some time talking about strength and conditioning and strength training. And I wanted to bring to your attention as both a parent and as a student athlete, the value of sleep. When you're in a weight room, when you're in a classroom, just after a long day, we take for granted the replenishment or the dynamic of recovery and replenishment of, uh, during the course of a day. Sleep absolutely benefits every single student athlete trying to cram 24 hours in a day and you're trying to run at full speed you get home you go to bed at 11 or 12 and you're trying to get up at five to go to the gym it's going to take its toll and so you really need to find some time to not only get a good eight to ten hours of sleep but also the power of a, a good nap is always going to benefit you as a student athlete so that plays a, a critical role of strength training, nutrition, but also sleep and hydration. Those are two areas that are not talked about a lot. We hear the words, but we don't really have any discussions as it pertains to sleep. I'm certainly not going to do that here tonight. Maybe that's something that Brett wants to discuss, but I'll leave that up to him. We do have a, a quick question that came in, and I'm going to get that over to Brett real quick want to welcome everyone here to our Monday night Mentors of Baseball discussion. We have a tremendous guest speaker that's going to be available to us tonight. I want to let parents understand that as a dad, as a dad of a, a, a higher than normal profile student athlete, or just a student athlete that played at, at the college level, and that's what I call a a high-level student-athlete. I, as a dad, never truly understood until maybe just recently when I had a dialogue with my son about the, the power and the, the bag of the weight of expectation. Expectation begins at a very early age. A student-athlete that may exhibit some ability and not only do his teammates and his coaches have expectations of that particular student athlete, but as a parent, 
sometimes the questions that we phrase, sometimes the timing of the topics that we discuss add or create expectation or stress on our children. We go long periods of time and maybe we don't have the the discussions that we think we we should have or could have had. And that tends to build up on student athletes. And we can see externally the powers and the benefits of strength training, the powers and the benefits of lessons. But we don't recognize sometimes, and I am guilty of this and have been guilty of this, the burden of the expectation as student athletes are participating and growing as young men. And in today's world of social media and all of the platforms that are out there between TikTok and Instagram, et cetera, those also add to the burden and to the stress of the expectations of a student athlete's mind. So I thought it would be good tonight, Brian, Butch, and myself thought it would be good tonight to discuss in lieu of some recent events that have happened throughout the country as they pertain to travel student athletes on the psychological slash mind set of student athletes. Now, Brett, I have not met personally, but reading his, his bio, playing at LSU and having played in an environment as a student athlete and being a PhD is going to be able to shed some light onto this topic tonight. And again, as a parent, if you have a question or a student athlete for Brett, he may not be able to see you raising his hands. So raise your hand if you would like to ask him a question. And also I've probably already received over 17 questions for Brett. I'm certainly not going to give them to him all in bulk form, but I will ask them when he has a break or when it's the right time to do that. So trust me, I'll make sure that I do that. So without further ado, I want to introduce Brett McCabe and you can let us know your background, Brett, and and what you do for student athletes currently. I appreciate that. And and I'm going to tell you right now, I am a novice when it comes to this Twitter add-on. I love Twitter. I live on Twitter. I've never done one of these. So if you send me a question, one of the moderators could just help me answer the question because I, I hate to tell you, I don't know where they're going. I can hear them beeping, but I don't know where they're going. Okay, that being said, so I'm Dr. Brett McCabe. I'm a clinical psychologist, and but I only work with athletes now. So I work with athletes across the board in professional and amateur worlds. I was a baseball player at LSU. I played for Coach Skip Bertman. What got me into psychology was <laughs> dealing with him. Not really. Coach was great, and he really focused on the middle game. But it was when I lost my physical ability due to an injury that I had to turn to I had to turn to the mental game to overcome it. And when I say this, I want you guys to understand this. My senior year, my junior and senior year in the SEC, I had one of the best pitching experiences you can have. I was, I led the team in appearances, lowest ERA, highest strikeout ratios, lowest walks, all this other stuff. And I threw 84 miles an hour as a right-hander. I had a 82 mile an hour slider, but I could, I could only throw after I was hurt. And so what it was, was my mental game. Now, I could also go around the lineup one time, and after that, you guys could figure me out and, and rip me a new one. But I, it got me into psychology, and I was not a psych guy. Let me be honest with you. I was not the dude that was like, dude, I love this psych stuff. Give me every book I can read, heads up baseballs, and all the other stuff. I was a guy who learned and studied by watching other people outside of sports. 
Uh, I love to read about or study the way that people build businesses and stuff like that. So when I got done, I was like, you know what? This psychology stuff is pretty cool. It really helped me. And I had worked with a guy off site and I skipped class to go to and then ended up getting a D in the class that I'd skipped. And that's what I decided, you know what? I'm going to switch to psychology. When I graduated, I wanted to go to grad school. Didn't know what that entailed. Thankfully, Coach Burtman's daughter, Lisa, um, was finishing up graduate training at LSU and said, look, you need to come meet with this professor. You've got some common interests. And that was really cool. And she opened up the door. And unfortunately, Lisa has passed away, but she was my mentor through grad school. And the, it opened up my eyes to the capabilities of the human spirit. And so as a clinician, I did my training in kind of the combination of medical settings and psychological settings. If you have chronic pain, chronic back pain, injury rehabilitation, stuff like that, I always worked in medical settings or athletic settings. I never did like the performance side. I, was, I wanted to study the other side of the continuum. And then I did my internship at Brown up in Rhode Island. Psychologists do a one-year clinical internship if we're clinical-based and then usually get licensed. And what I did after that is I went to go work in the pharmaceutical industry doing research and development. Once again, it was like looking at the way performance works, but dealing with billion-dollar drugs. And then I moved to Birmingham, Alabama <clears throat> about two, three years after I graduated and finished my dissertation. And I started as an avid golfer, as a pitcher, we would get away to go play golf whenever we could. And I started helping out some golfers and those golfers became U S open champs and amateur champs. And, and now I have about 15 guys on the PJ tour, including the number one player in the world and some other stuff. Now you say, well, wait a minute, golf, baseball, what are we doing here? I've always worked with baseball players. I've always been very quiet about it. If you know me or don't know me, I'm not a very big self promoter on social media. I'd rather use content. You're not going to see me promote who I work with. Players are allowed, they allow me to talk about it. But one of the things that I've been very, had a very good opportunity to do is be around the best players in the world in their sports, NFL, baseball, you name it. And because I don't self, because I'm not out there trying to promote it or market it and being a clinician, I tend to get inside what they're struggling with. And as a clinician, understanding the realm of the human experience we are sitting in a spot right now where our athletes are experiencing more stress and anxiety than I've ever seen. It's concerning to me. I'm the sports psychologist for the University of Alabama. I work with all sports over there. I do clinical work there as well. And the number of athletes that come and see me and are struggling with the pressure, the demands, the exhausting hours, trying to live up to the standards and all those other things is that we are building and putting so much pressure on our kids that our mental health is the aspect that it's struggling with. And I say all that not to scare us, but as coaches, as parents, we have to be better at how to manage this. We all know how to ice arms. We all know how to stretch. We all know how to do that. But if somebody came to us and said, I'm having very serious thoughts of hurting or harming myself, most coaches would lose the blood in their face and not know what to do. And we have to take that ahead of it and go, wait a minute. Uh, -uh. We have to know what to do. And so we can talk about how to maximize our performance. We can also talk about how to maximize us as humans and prepare us for the difficulty and the challenges that we all face. And I'm open to you guys tonight to talk about it. I'll talk about my own experiences. I'll talk about my own struggles. And I want to be here to help. This is a very big soapbox moment for me. 15 years ago, I was yelling and screaming that we needed to profile athletes and mental health. Thankfully, in the last five years, because of Players Tribune, I give it 100% credit. 
it's opened up the door for players to self-disclose, which has been a lifesaver for many of our athletes. But our athletes don't need to suffer in the silence anymore and in the shadows. And it doesn't mean that they're going to have psychological issues the rest of their life. But let's use sports, coaching, and development to reach them now so that we better prepare them for life. That's my ultimate goal. And I will say this from a baseball standpoint. I was on two national title teams at LSU. I pitched in the 94 World Series, College World Series. My roommate spent 13 years in the major leagues. A lot of my teammates have been up, played against a lot of really good guys. I quickly realized why I needed to go to grad school. So how about that? There's great players across the board. You want to ask some of the questions or any questions for me? I do. I have one, Brett. Yeah. Can I ask a question, Walter? Brett, what are the signs that you would tell parents and players when a teammate or their son is having difficulties mentally and they need to take a step back and look at this and how they can help their own kid or another kid that might be on the kid's team? That's a great question. So when I'm going to talk about depression, anxiety, a lot of times they're the same thing. They're not the same experience, but they run together. Okay. It's like a hot dog and mustard. They work together. A lot of times what our athletes do is they be, if you think about the amount of things that have to work through the funnel of life to come down to us, there becomes a back backlash, a buildup. And when somebody is starting to lose interest in what they do, they're feeling overwhelmed. They can't see hope. They can't see the way through something. Many people start having physiological changes. They may start having more and more stomach aches, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. They may have severe headaches. They start expressing avoidance based of things. I don't want to go. I don't want to be there. I don't enjoy the game anymore. I'm not enjoying anything about the game. This sucks all the time. That kind of stuff is one major sign. Now, what's the difference between that and general adolescents or teenagers? You know your kids, okay? Obviously, if we went to the realm of people in a more of a psychiatric emergency, feelings of thoughts of harming themselves or hurting themselves or cutting themselves, or unfortunately, athletes for many years have self-medicated with alcohol or substances. Those are things to always look for. But the most thing that I see is I see players that come to see me. Their emotions are at the brink. They're up to their eyeballs and emotions. They're doing everything they can to suppress it and keep it back. And they feel like they're the only one in the world that's feeling this way. And when you finally mention and say, that's normal or that's okay, then it's like this flood of emotions come because this generation of kid, I don't mean to be the 50-year-old guy or 49, I'm not 50 yet, but 49-year-old guy is going this younger generation. This generation has been sold, not because of us necessarily, but maybe social media is that it should have been faster. It should have been easier. It should have been you know, compare yourself to kids across the country and where you're playing that nobody seems to struggle. And what happens is they misinterpret, misunderstand, or mislabel what they're feeling as a failure of them rather than going, you know what? I'm having a really hard time managing the darker, harder days. There's more self-defeatist talk. There's more self-defeatist conversations. There's more frustration, there's resistance more to coaching. They feel hopeless. Can they ever get over it? Those are some things to be very concerned about. Can we get them out of it? Absolutely. Trained professionals, who I know some of these are listening tonight, that's what we do as coaches. 
some of the mistakes that we tend to make and we do it well-meaning is, hey, just go out there and have fun again. It's not fun when you're struggling. And it's not fun when you're putting your hand in the meat grinder. And that's a lot of times what they feel like is everything I'm doing is just hurting me back. I just recently wrote a book called Break Free from Suckville, which is the whole idea is that people are falling short of what they think it should be. And that space between where they are and where they think they should be is what I call Suckville. And that is a pervasive, contagious place to be because it's always falling short of this ideal. And the more you see yourself falling short of your ideal, the more frustrated you get, the more angry you get, and more importantly, the more you start seeing negativity. And so that cycles and it builds. And instead of saying, hey, just go out there and have fun again, it's let's build some plans and some processes to work ourselves out of it. You know, my previous background before I got into, into business and all that was as a psychiatric social worker. And Beautiful. I chronically mentally ill and dual diagnosis people for, for ages. And a big part of the break happens is the self-talk that that plays constantly in your head of all the different things. As athletes, there's always some self-talk, right? You know, oh, you know, I suck. I made that. I made that mistake. Oftentimes, that will lead to lack of confidence and lack of ability. All of a sudden, on the field, can you explore a little bit about how some of that self-talk, positive, negative, can affect our performance on the field, and how sometimes we might be struggling a little bit. And all of a sudden, we think there's mechanical issues today instead of saying, hey, you know, I, I just need to correct that self-talk in that conference. Yeah, I look at self-talk as a reflection of self-belief, okay? So when we have a our self-talk tends to flip to the negative. Yeah, if we're doing a workout and our mind says, you can't do this, fight through this, they're going to make, okay, that's one thing. We've all used negative self-talk to overcome a challenging scenario. But the bigger part of that is when our self-talk becomes contagious and it's reflective upon this negative attitude, negative perception of we have of ourselves, that it's always sucks. It's always down. I can't do this. What we do is we see the moments around us and they become insurmountable because that self-talk is not only reflecting a lack of self-belief, it's also reflecting the commands, the discussion, the dialogue in our head. We all have people in our life that have a negative presentation about themselves and they complain constantly. And for the most part, most of us will say, you know what? I'm busy for lunch. I just, oh man, I just, and that's what we're doing to ourselves. And so what happens is this, this wall of courage, this wall of resiliency, this wall of grittiness that we all need. When we have the negative self-talk that becomes contagious when there's no resistance to it, it just eats away at the core and at the foundation of it. And eventually it crumbles this ability for us to face anything before us. When I talk about self-belief is the highest thing that we have. It is the belief that I can handle anything, anytime, anywhere. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to succeed, but it means I can handle anything, anytime, anywhere. Put me in the fight. I'm in it. What builds belief is confidence. Confidence is I know I can do it in these environments. What builds confidence is trust. If I do X, it leads to Y. Trust over time builds confidence, which builds belief. What builds trust is a plan. How do you develop yourself? And then your vision, what do you want to be? So, Ryan, I think what, a lot of what you're talking about is this negative self-talk is a lot of times coming from a vision of, I don't know if I can do it. 
and then it becomes contagious and we lose that confidence. We lose that trust. We lose that self-belief. And it's because there's no resistance in our head to negativity. What happens is it just runs like wildfire. But when we need to draw on ourselves to push forward, it makes it really difficult. Okay, Brett, I have a, a question that's, I, I have a lot of questions. I'm going to try to read as many as I can. So parents that understand that are sending them to me, I will try to get as many as I can to Brett. Question for Brett. How do you relay the light at the end of the tunnel to a player who always uses the, quote, I'm so ready to quit, unquote, language after a bad performance? How do you yeah. explain the value of fringing through these issues, fighting through these issues, and the reward afterwards to this type of player? Great, great question. So I'm going to answer this in two ways. First of all, when a kid, a player always says, I'm going to quit, I suck. Many times it doesn't always reflect their belief in themselves. What it does is it's a call for you to reinforce and build them up. All right. Everything we do in life gets reinforced, supported, something by the people around us. I suck. And mom or dad go, no, you don't. You're really good. Stick with it. It's a reassurance. Okay. And so I'm not saying to tell them, yeah, you do suck. What it is, you have to understand that they don't know down the road. You have a 30,000 foot view. They have a three-inch view of the crap that's right in front of their head. And so all they can see is the struggle in front of them. They can't see that perspective. And so without promising them, like the worst thing we can tell our kids is you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. I can't win an Olympic gold medal in swimming or track and field or synchronized swimming or figure skating. I can't have everything I want but I can fight like hell to create the best version and options for me. And so what I tell them to do is this, look, I know you think you suck. That's result-based. Show me what fight you have when the outcome looks dire. Let's learn that skill. Find, and it's hard, man. It's hard when you're constantly losing or you're getting beat. But if you're looking for the relief or the breakthrough moment, you'll never get it. And so you're constantly disappointed and you're constantly having your expectations blasted. Instead, let's make this a challenge. And here's this. What do you think other people would do in your situation? Do you think they can handle what you're going through right now? See that as a challenge to see what you can learn about yourself. I don't like people to say, see what you're made of, because that seems like maybe I'm not made. Let's see what we can learn about ourselves. I can't guarantee that you're going to make the high school team. I can't make it. You're going to guarantee you're going to make the college team. I can't guarantee you're going to have success. But I also don't want to have regrets. And so I have as a parent the ability to see down the road and know certain things that you don't know. But I can't predict the future. But what I can do is say, let's learn about ourselves while we fight. it. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to put our, our head in the fight and get after it? Or are we going to walk away with regret? because we can never resolve regret. I can always pick you up if you fail. Like we're really good at failing. We're all really good at failing, but it's really hard to resolve regret. Now I can honor that. If somebody says, you know what? I'm at the end. I'm done. I had a, a player recently that came and saw me remotely and he was at this place, a professional athlete. And so what we did is we developed an entire after play career plan. He presented it to his wife, his agent, everything. And lo and behold, he got signed. And lo and behold, he's doing amazing. Why? Because the unknown was so scary to him that he wouldn't look at it. 
Now we put it on the paper. You realize it's not that bad. So let's go take advantage of what I got and change this whole mindset. And that's one of the ways I do it. Before we jump to the next question, I just, I, I just want to clarify one thing for everybody. Because I think this is an issue that a lot of people look at as not my son yet. And it's not. But what age do we start helping kids understand the importance of the mental game and, and, the, and the importance of self-talk? And obviously, the impact it has, obviously, as you go up in the higher levels. That's a good question. It's interesting. Right? And there's a lot of different layers of the mental game. There's the the rah-rah, the motivational, the, the lessons on the wall. Those are great. I still look at those today. There's learning from somebody who's been through the fight, sharing experiences. There's people who have overcome it and they're sharing their way of doing it. There's coaches, right? Who my coach was the greatest sports psychologist I ever had. He was a baseball coach. My life is different because of that man. And I, I love that man. I, if he needed me in Baton Rouge tonight, I'd walk to Baton Rouge six hours away. Okay. He changed my life because he challenged me. And I'm happy to tell that story. And then there's licensed professionals. And when is the right time? It's always the right time to be parented and coached. That can start as early as we need to be by giving them an understanding of the good, the bad, and the ugly, by not trying to promise them or put them on a pedestal for our own good. As parents, our job is to give them the opportunity to have a better life than we had. But that doesn't mean it needs to be easier than the life we had because maybe they won't value it. And so I think a lot of times parents see potential of their kid at 8 to 10 to 12, and their kid is more physically developed. I played one year of varsity baseball because I didn't grow to my senior year in high school. In today's world, I've been bypassed because I didn't sign as, or commit as a high school freshman. But I grew to be six foot five. And before I got hurt, I threw really hard. And, and so we've got to look at that and say, we're all, on, we're all running a different race. So let's, as coaches, let's build, and as parents, let's build the foundation to say, hey, not this is what you did wrong out there. Let me fix it. It's tell me what you experienced out there and let's talk about it versus judging them. Players at the end of their career, they're going to remember two things about you as parents and as coaches. How did you behave and how did you make them feel when times were tough? Okay, they're going to remember that. I can. My dad played college baseball at the University of Toledo. He was a very stoic man. I could hear his whistle in the College World Series in front of 25,000 people live on ESPN in the stadium spinning in my head. And I could hear his whistle. And his whistle makes me choke up now thinking like he's passed away for 10 years but that whistle to me was his sign of support it wasn't god i cannot believe he threw that pitch it was i'm here for you that's what we need to be that can be at every level so as parents and as coaches even at 7 10 we can teach them about hey we're going to be ready for every play you know what you make an error show me who you are in the next play that's the biggest challenge I can have high demands for you, but I can also have high demands on how you handle things. That's what I think is important. Nick, you want to ask your question, Nick? Yeah, Walter, thank you so much, guys. This is awesome. Uh, Dr. Brett McKay, man, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I had you on the pod not yep. too long ago. Nick, this is McCor from the Reform Sports Absolutely. Project, man. I'm, um, I can't, can't wait to get that out there. there. You're really talking about something that I was going to bring up, and that is – 
as a parent, as a father of six, and I've done a ton of interviews, and this is, it crosses over all aspects of sports and, and the youth areas, being extremely intentional with how I celebrate and or correct my kids' performance. I think it's – can you touch on how – because I've heard many people say how – it's great to be excited for your kid when they do well, but you don't want to make them feel subconsciously that you're tying their, your love for them to their performance. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very easy to do. And a lot of times I had passionate parents and, and at times I'm a passionate father and coach. It's, it's very easy at times for a kid to be confused. Oh, my dad's really excited right now because I went four for four. And then he strikes out three times. Oh, dad's really down. It, do, as parents, do we need to be intentional and cognizant that we're not sending messages to these kids that their self-worth or our love for them is tied to their performance? It's an absolute because we are conditioned as people. I'm not sure if we lost Brett. Okay. Are you there? Yeah, I can't hear okay. him. There you are. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, there okay, you go. My uh, headphones. Been there. There you are. Both. You there? You there? Yes. Sorry. Yes, indeed. Now they want to. That's come, okay. Now they want to come back alive. Okay. It's like the McRib. Technology at its finest. Exactly. Got to roll with it. But both of my daughters played high school golf, and I'd walk the fairways, and my daughter would look at me and go, "What's the matter?" I'm like nothing is the matter. First of all, walking five and a half hours to watch high school girls golf sometimes is pretty mind numbing. Okay, but what I realized is I was probably given off some subconscious feel like things. So what I started doing was listening to podcasts and chewing sunflower seeds. It kept my mouth busy. It didn't. It changed my facial expression. It didn't show me looking frustrated. And I say that because our kids are very aware of what we 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 project. I've never had a kid that goes, "Ooh, my dad's really pissed off in the stands, and I'm going to play better now." Never seen that. Okay. What I see is, oh my God, now I got to please my dad. He never happy. And instead of doing that, why can't we be the people who, as parents and say, look, I'm going to have high demands for how you act and how you engage in each opportunity. And I'll also give you the opportunities and the access to people to learn to get better. But when you're out there competing, I'm going to respect how hard competition really is. Because I think a lot of our parents forget how hard it is. They forget that what it's like to be in the heat of the moment and having to fight like hell to try to achieve something without even having the pressure of pleasing people in the stands. And it's funny because parents think they're helping their kids by yelling out instructions. I had a kid who came and saw me and dad was a, not even a player, but grew up loving the game. And he literally, the kid finally turned to him and said, dad, I love you to death. But what you're telling me is not helping me. I know what I'm doing. Let me figure it out. It'll mean more. And the dad really thought he was doing what was right. So I have rules for my parents is be the most positive influence outside the chain link fence. You don't need to be hovering over the dugout. It's not about you. Okay. We all learned for the most part to play in our backyards and we didn't have our parents telling us what we were doing right or wrong. We figured it out. Let them figure it out. You have a long time in going. The 12 year old superstar very rarely is the 18 year old superstar. Let them learn to figure it out. Second, don't talk about the game for three hours after the game. Every kid wants to come off the field and go eat somewhere fun or go get ice cream. Nobody wants to go home and have meatloaf. So say, hey, where do you want to go get ice cream after the game? 
And if you need to teach them something, write it down so that when you come back later, you're not as emotional. Because imagine coming in from the end of the day, and the first thing you do when you walk in, somebody goes, hey, I know you've been in traffic all day, but why did you make that decision at 9, 10 this morning to answer that email that way? You're better than that. You'd be like, what are you talking about? That's not the time. Now, I can say things like, hey, look, I thought you played I thought you gave it everything you had out there. And that pitcher got the best of you today. That's honest. Okay. We'll work on it. What did you learn? Look, I'm not saying to be walking around with our heads in the clouds. We can still be great people and teach them. I can remember my daughter, my oldest one came home from college. She has Crohn's disease and she has got a, I love the kid to death. She's gone through so much. She's a very successful business owner now. But one semester when her Crohn's was really bad, she made two D's in college. And she came home and she said, well, at least it wasn't F's. And I said, well, you're right, but what are you going to do about it? Because before I changed my major to psychology, when I was pitching every night at LSU, I made a D in a class. And I changed my entire t uh, study habits. She never made a grade lower than an A after making that D because she changed her study habits. I didn't care if she made a D. I cared that she learned because of the D. And that's what we have to look at. And as parents, it's not about us. And I know people, everyone on this is, I'm not that parent. I know you're not. But we can also model ourselves to other parents. But we love our kids so much that sometimes we crush them. Like Lenny of Mice and Men crushed his bunnies. He loved it so much. And sometimes give them the chance. When they ride a bike, we don't run alongside with them and tell them, down, push, down, bounce. Let them figure it out. And they will figure it out. And we got to give them the freedom to do that. Well, I just want to jump in here and let parents know every single thing that Brett just mentioned, I failed at as a father with regard to probably both my sons, but more so with my youngest son. And that was because I wanted him to succeed so badly, not based on athletic success. It was more about quality of his future and the quality of his life and as i told last night on butch's chat on sunday my son was 12 years old and he was up with the bases loaded two outs and the team was down by three runs and as brett alluded to he could hear his father's whistle amongst twenty-five thousand at rosenblatt stadium in Omaha. This was a little league all-star regional game with maybe a thousand parents. And I, I didn't realize it until there was a video after the event. He, he ended up hitting a grand slam and his team won. That's not my point. After the game, a parent was sharing the video of the moment. And embarrassingly, all I could hear was myself telling my son to swing the bat. The young man he was facing was throwing gas, high-octane, little-league gas. And after the event, after he hit the home run, you could just I could hear my voice. And when he circled the bases and what everybody else was joyous and jumping up and down, he was crying in the dugout. It was at that moment as a dad that I absolutely, unequivocally, decided I could no longer be that guy. Oh. 
I couldn't coach my son from the sidelines. Nothing, I could not will my son to be successful. From that point forward, all through high school and college, I watched his games from center field. And after every game, I tried to discuss, did you have fun? Let's go get some pizza. But I made miserable mistakes because as a college head coach, I took that and I put that on my son's shoulder. And so knowing that now, I just want parents to understand, as Brett just said, there's nothing we can do from the sidelines. We can't. Our sons are not video games. Whether they're successful, whether they're whether they make an error, there's nothing that we can do. It's how they control that moment. I just wanted to jump in there because I thought opportunity to shed some light. I have made the mistakes, but I didn't recognize them until two. No, my son plays at a high level now. I just know that that wears on him to this day. Brett, thank you for bringing well, that no, to and, th- and thank you for sharing that because I think as parents, I will say this too, as parents, we're under attack. Any article you read in the sports media literature is about how parents are overbearing and that we're over-specializing our kids. But as one of my teammates' wives said, who had a very successful long-term career in in uh, Major League Baseball, he said, she said, and, but, and one of their children played college baseball at a high level too, said, would they look at us different if our kids were in drama? And then I had to take them seven days a week to learn the plays uh, in the play, the words in the play. And I said, you know what? That's a great question. I said, you have to look at it. It's not about you. And I said, it's a great question because the world is taking attack at our parents because it's easy. Our coaches are in crisis right now because we do have a subset of people that are trying to influence decision-making. But the, the 90% of those that are trying to do it right are ignored by the 10% that are totally bad. But that doesn't mean that we can't be better because of it. And I want our kids to look back, whether they go to college or not, and play college ball or play it professionally, is learn what the game teaches them. The game teaches resiliency. It teaches you how to deal with failure. And uncertainty is the greatest fear that we have because we just don't know what we're going to do. We don't know how we're going to play. We don't know how we're going to face things. So let's learn how to face uncertainty. And as parents, let's understand that we need to eat our own Pepto-Bismol in the stands. I used to tell parents all the time, it's like watching my two kids play college, our high school golf. It was like watching a, punny, a puppy run down a busy interstate. I knew the damn thing was going to get run over eventually, but I could not look. And that's a lot of times what we have in sports is we know the problems are there and all we want to do is protect them. And we can't, but we turned out okay. They're going to turn out. We need to teach them that we need to help them understand how to solve problems, not avoid them. That's the biggest thing. Brett, can I ask you another question? This concerns kids and their parents because we have many players on this call with their parents. And I know like at Colfax High here in California, they got their whole team in their weight room listening to this talk. So this is tremendous what you're doing here for these people, for all of us, for myself, all of us. And I'm with Walter. I once called my daughter a mental midget on the Mm. basketball court. And I mean, to this day, still hurts her 
and probably the biggest mistake I ever made in dealing with an athlete, and it was my daughter. My question to you would be this. With so much pressure on these kids today to achieve through social media and all the stuff that's on social media, guys signing D1 deals, and the pressure they feel, how should the player react to the parent that gets in the car and starts blasting away? And how would you tell a player how to deal with failure in one game and when they get in the car, somebody's blasting away at them. What should the players do? And that's a great question because as as kids, we still look up to our parents. They're still our authority figures in our life, and it's hard to stand up to them and say, you're doing it wrong. I don't think any kid could really do that in a healthy manner. I think the first thing to do is weather the storm in that, and then at a later time when things calm down and say, hey, mom or dad, I, I get it. I know you love me, but I'm going to tell you, it doesn't really help. But you know what would help? is before the game telling me and asking me if I'm ready, asking me what my plan is going to be and things like that. After the game, I know you want to share. So sometimes it's about the kids understanding how to weather the storm, not change it. And that's important because I can't, I'm not, I can't be responsible for somebody else's behavior, but I can always be responsible for how I respond to their behavior. So is as a kid is maybe realizing and, and separate and saying, they're not really thinking clearly right now. They're still caught up in the moment, just like I was yelling at the umpire for blowing a call. And it's not personal. When things calm down, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, I will work on it. You're right. But then later come back and say, can I talk about that? Because it's a hard conversation to have as a parent. But I will tell you, and almost every professional athlete, I have to work on putting up boundaries with their, kid, with their parents. And that's sometimes into their 30s. We mean, and we have all the answers. The moment that hit me was my daughter was getting ready to play in the state tournament, and she had just won an event to go to the state tournament. And I was playing in our member guest, and we were in the playoff. And I was playing with their grandpa, my father-in-law. And I hit a shot, and it cost us to lose the event. And when we got done, my daughter goes, see, it is hard. And I was like, oh, yes, you're right. It is hard. And I loved it because she was teasing, but there was a message there. It was more than just a tease. So I think as parents, we have to listen to our kids sometimes. We also need to watch their body language. We want them as they get older to have a conversation with us about sports, not feel like they're being lectured to. And if, they, if it's a one-way conversation, it's not a good conversation. Okay, We got to remember, emotion is fine. As human beings, we are emotional creatures. We are allowed to be emotional. I don't want to do us, do us anything that embarrasses ourselves or others or the game, but we're allowed to be emotional. And I know a lot of people get upset when they see their kids cry on the field. They're still young, emotional beings. They don't have the logical sense of the brain developed yet. And a lot of times they cry because they want it so bad for themselves. The other thing you have to remember as a parent, when you look out there and you see your kid and they look like they're not trying, 99% of the time, they're trying so hard that they've shut down. Like the computer screen, the app on the computer that is just spinning. They're doing so much that they've shut down and they don't know where to go. So as parents and as coaches, remember, put ourselves in their shoes every once in a while. It's hard. If you got in the car and we were in the wrong part of town and everybody was yelling at us, it was, we were lost, 
our GPS wasn't working, our cell phones not working, it's pouring down rain, the radio's on, four more people in the backseat telling us which way to go is not the answer. Sometimes it's everybody calm down, hush up for a minute, let's make a plan. So as kids, we need to say, you know what really helps me? And I think that's always something that's important for players on this call to think of, okay? Don't avoid your parents or coaches because we'll find you eventually and we're going to bring up the wrong thing. It's like sitting in class when you don't want to read aloud or you don't want to answer the question. If you look down, I'm going to call on you. But if you look me in the eyes, I probably won't call on you. So instead of looking away or trying to avoid it, say, hey, Dad, I got a question for you. Go to them with a question that you may already know the answer to, but you just want some more reassurance. That's cool. I dig that 100%. That puts you in charge, by the way. Okay, I have a another question here, and I'm, I'm going to uh, – there's been a whole bunch of them, and I want to bring this one up. What is a qu- quick cue or reset that you re- recommend for the player that is struggling in the moment or the train has totally derailed, meaning – Here's a situation for you. My son was in the College World Series against Cal Irvine, hit two batters, walked three batters, and how do you regroup? Like, how do you put them back on the track? Is there something a player can do to reset? Yeah, is there – what I'll do later tonight, if you guys all follow me on Twitter, I'm not just asking you to follow me, but, yeah, please follow me. I will put a video up that I have found from a blog called Smarter Every Day. And I use this for uh, 100% of my athletes across any sport. It has nothing to do with sports, and I'll leave it at that. But it's an example of training Marines on how to get out of a drowning helicopter. And what we have to do is realize that a lot of times the act of resisting or the panic to get out of the situation immediately is the worst thing we can do. The best thing to do, just like your son, is to sit in it. Great pitching coaches, like I know he had, great pitching coaches often come to the mound, and they're not going to say anything right away. Coach Bertman used to come out to the mound and say, whew, man, you see who's sitting in the third row? It was just enough to break the chain. Okay, that's all. Very rarely, and in the old days, you could do this. Now you have to ask for permission. But there's also a thought of if you're going to coach somebody or if you're a third baseman, Go out and put your hand on their shoulder. The physical touch, if you're allowed, and we don't want to cross boundaries in today's spaces, but you put their hand on their shoulder, it does calm people down. All right. If you don't have those, one other thing to do is to realize that you can handle it. It's let's sit in it for a minute. Let's, when people say breathe, breathing is like peeing on the fire. It doesn't really go away. Breathing is just a recentering breath, not a relaxation breath in the heat of the moment. So oftentimes what I say is do something physical, change, you know, move your hat around. Pitchers have always retied their shoes. It's a great thing. Go behind the mound, retie the shoes, then take a deep breath and then have a clear action plan of what you want to do next. But don't expect it to go away. Plan for it to be difficult and maneuver through it. Again, I want to ask parents, if you have a question specifically for Brett, you can raise your hand or you can ask me to bring you up as a speaker. I'll continue to read these questions. Um, I'm going to ask one other gentleman if he would like to speak. But I have a question here from a parent of a pitcher. 
says, how can we relax student athletes when we're trying to take videos and they know these videos are being sent to college coaches? Why is it all about videos now for college coaches and not just actually seeing games? Now, I know a lot of college coaches can't be at all the games, but I guess the question he's asking is, how can you get student athletes to flow and be fluid and athletic when they know we're all taking videos that are going to be sent at practice or their games and so forth, going to send out to college coaches. How do you get players to relax and perform, I guess, is his question. What a great question. Um, it's not something that I had. I had one opportunity to go to college. It was LSU. So I wasn't heavily recruited. <laughs> hey, that's just a, a sore spot for me. That being said, okay, today's world, these kids, all of our kids, man, there's there's so much. The There's so much on the – in the front of everything being filmed, evaluated, judged, or the jerks on social media who comment about them. I, I have all my professional athletes give up their social media accounts to their managers. Okay, they're they're because they don't need to see the vile comments that's created by a bot. I will say this, and this is a quick sidebar. I think what uh, Jack from Twitter has done with allowing bots is the equivalent of child abuse and bullying. And it's going to lead to child you know, kids' death, and he's going to be held liable for it one day. The, there's absolutely zero reason, zero reason for us to have bots that can attack human beings. I hope he burns for this. Okay, that being said, sorry, we're on your platform, Jack. You can deplatform me now if you want. I think what we need to tell him is, listen, that's a secondary effect. Okay, being filmed and going to college, you can't control what college coaches are looking for. A lot of coaches are going to look at certain intangibles that. We don't understand. Other coaches are going to look at grittiness and the ability to overcome. And some coaches are going to be willing to take chances. There's college coaches on here that can all speak to it. They all have a, a prediction system that they trust because they've done it for years. And they're looking for certain things. So the easy way to do it is just to say, we're going to film everything you throw in. That's cool. We're documenting for life and some of them we'll put together and send out. But it's not any different than when a college coach used to come and sit in the stands in my high school games and he was behind home plate. Like I knew he was there. I think it's just getting them to understand that all that you can control is what you do. If you're pitching to that college coach, you're pitching to the wrong person in the game. And you got, and it's the same thing I tell my golfers and stuff like that. If they're playing to a leaderboard, they're going to get, they're going to get lost. Focus on what you can control. That's the 60 feet, six inches that you're going to face. That's it. If you can control that, everything else always seems to take place, take care of itself. By the way, a couple other things. We can't tell kids to not care what other people think. Because essentially, and Brian will tell you this, the only people out there that really don't care what other people think are sociopaths. There's always people we care that care about what we think. Okay? We don't need to raise sociopaths. We need to put what other people think in proper perspective, which is you can't control it. They can't control your opinions and you can't control theirs. So why don't we go put our best foot forward and go give it a rip? We all worry about what other people think. That's why we dress the way we do. We drive the cars we do. We look the way we do. We try to do things the way. It's just human nature. It's completely built into our DNA. Okay, I just want to see if uh, Mr. Stagg, would you like to ask your question here? Actually, I'd like to make a comment on that last thing. Um, going to come at it from a different angle because of my past profession as a naval aviator i oh. flew jets off of an aircraft carrier thank you and every time we landed 
it was not only videoed, but it was graded. Everyone, everyone we did at the airfield, everyone we did at the on the carrier, it was videoed and recorded. Okay, and we watched it. It was graded by an LSO, landing signal officer. They gave you your grade, good, bad, indifferent. Sometimes you had a bad day behind the carrier. Some days you had a good day. <laughs> and and I've taken that into coaching. One of the things, my son's sitting here and I said, hey, when we videotape you, does it bother you during a game? And he said, no, because you're always videotaping. And that's one of the reasons we do it. We can be in the garage, just having hitting practice off a tee in the video, the, the camera's going. And we look at it, we throw it away. We, during pitching lessons, he, his, his pitching instructor videos them. They look at it, they throw it away. So the more you do it, the more you, instead of videoing at the specific moment in time where you're expecting them to perform, if they get used to just bidding videotaped, just like I was used to having being graded every Mm -hmm. time I landed, I didn't think about it. When I rolled into the groove, and I had 45 seconds to put it down behind the back of the end of the carrier. It didn't matter whether or not the deck was pitching and rolling 10 degrees or I had 50 miles of visibility. I wasn't thinking of the LSO grading me because it happened every single time. Mm. So I think the more you videotape them, the more you put them in front of the camera, yep. the more they're used to it and they see themselves. And we, and we throw it away. We just, hey, hey, let's look at this. We were at batting practice today. I videotaped him, set it up. We took a look at a couple swings. They're off my iPad already. They're delete, delete, delete. He's used to being videotaped. Yeah. And instead of, again, instead of putting it like, oh, I'm going to videotape you today because we got to send this to coach. Then he knows that just... He just videotape all kinds of things mm-hmm. that he's doing. Practice, you know, batting practice, pitching practice, fielding practice, whatever. And I'm telling you, that thought will not, it probably will not enter his brain when he's standing on the mound or he's standing in the batter's box. He's not going to be thinking, oh, mom's videotaping me right now. Yeah, mom videotapes me all the time. No big deal. Yeah. Okay, so what? <laughs> okay, I just, as soon as you th- that came up, I thought, oh, I... Only because of past history in a profession where we're graded on everything we do. Yep. We, everything we do in the air is graded. And, and The more you're graded, the, the more comfortable you get with and it. If I'm not so mistaken, I'll let you go now. Well, no, no, no. I think it's wonderful you said that. My dad was 20 years Air Force, Lieutenant Colonel, C-130 Navigator, too tall to be a pilot, so he was in the back. But I think it's maybe the way I was raised, too, is that there's always an after action, and it's not personal. It's, hey, what did you learn today? What did you struggle with? And what are we going to do tomorrow? It was as black and white as it got. And so for me to have a conversation with my dad, it was no big deal. Because all of a sudden, it wasn't dependent upon my behavior. It was dependent upon the fact that we played. And that was cool. Like, I got that. And I think you bring up a good point. Because also, the other point is, if I'm not mistaken, from a naval naval aviator point, pretty much everybody giving you feedback has been in that seat, for the most part. I hit the wrong button. Let me bring it. I I apologize for that. That was my fault. I'll bring him back yeah. up. Hold on one. Sorry, D. Hey, but but everybody's been in that seat with you. 
at some point or been in their own seat. So there's a on the carrier grading carrier landings is a carrier aviator. Yes. They, they're, they're, they, you, whether or not they're flying an F-18 like I did, or they're flying an S-3 or an A-6, E-6B, whatever, an S-2, they've still landed aboard the carrier. Yep, they've had to yeah, deal with that. Too. There's nobody that hasn't had seat time and put hundreds of landings aboard an aircraft carrier before you become a landing signal officer. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's an important point, right? Because somebody's, nobody's passing judgment hasn't been there. And I think sometimes as parents, we have to remember, we're not real good about remembering our own past athletic ability and coaches, nor are you. I'm not either. So a lot of times we think, well, I never had to, I overcame everything I did when I was playing. No, you didn't. Okay. No, you didn't. You struggled too. And yes, you hated 530 in the morning workouts, just like everybody else does today. And so we have to remember and have a little grace when it comes to that, because that is important. That is important. Okay, I have a question, and this has been asked several different ways, and I'm just going to read it as it was as, as they've all sent it. What is your advice for student athletes that no longer have the desire to play after high school, or they have offers to play after high school, but they just don't seem to be having any fun in multiple sports, just not baseball? What is your advice to those student athletes to? reinvigorate or, or bring them back to their happy place within the sport? That's a great point. I think so often in today in the world that we're in of, so I have a buddy of mine who's in the NFL hall of fame and he, he was at LSU when I was there. And it's amazing that when LSU was at its darkest days of football, we have two hall of fame offensive linemen, Kevin Mawai and Alan Fanica. But Kevin and I were having a conversation one day and he said, when people come to me and say, I want my son to play college football, he's like, do you really? Why? It's a great experience. Really? You're going to lose every holiday in your family. You're going to work through Thanksgiving. You're not going to have them over the summer anymore. It's one week off during the summer. It's not like it used to be. Why do you want them to be? And a lot of times we try to encourage them for what we think of the experience is. And we also have to remember that I look back at my time playing baseball at LSU. It was one of the greatest times of my life. When I was in it, it sucked. Okay, there was adulation out there, but there were a lot of heartaches. There are a lot of times that were very difficult. And I think we have to be careful not to paint a picture that's so rosy that we all want them to go to the next level. There's kids that just choose, you know what? I want to go and be a student. I want to not have the pressure. I want to go, I want to go get involved in that kind of stuff. I want to be involved in the full college experience that kind of things. And so I think it's when somebody wants to walk away from the game, I think we need to give them the opportunity to have that thought. And sometimes if we don't give them the resistance, they may fall in love with it when you've taken the pressure off. I had an athlete today that came out. I don't know if he's on this, but he was sharing the experience when he was a downhill snow racer, uh, snow ski racer, downhill skiing guy. And when he finally made the decision, he didn't want to pursue that in it didn't, he, he knew he didn't want to do that in college. He became a really fast racer because he no longer was trying not to mess up to impress people. And he just said, who, how good can I get before I leave the game? Sometimes there's people who have a really good execution when they know they're on their last day of vacation. They can finally enjoy it. And so I think people come to their own conclusions all the time. Listen, if somebody really wants to play the game, they'll go anywhere they need to play. 
if they're doing it for themselves. They'll start at the University of North Dakota State in the smallest school possible. They'll do it. Brett, can mm-hmm. I ask you another question, please? This, by far, is one of the best conversations I've ever been involved oh, with. Wow. So thank, thank you. you. I want to ask you from a team standpoint, from kids dealing with other kids in team situations, there can always be, you might have one, I hate to say it, but an asshole on your team, a kid that doesn't get along with uh, the other teammates because of his selfishness and can't stop talking about himself. How can (laughs) the other players integrate him into the team system or the coach so that he understands his actions are hurting the team. Life is full of assholes. One of the best books I've ever read is a book called The No Asshole Rule by a former Stanford professor. I think every coach and every person should read it. The whole process is what do you, uh, what do, you do when you have an asshole? Assholes, okay, we'll clean it up now. Jerks, although that word is so good. That's so good. The asshole is such a perfect word. The, we all have to deal with people who don't want to change and people who are self-absorbed. And that's many things that we can't detail. And sometimes we don't know the level of suffering they're going through in their own life and their own insecurities. So sometimes instead of berating them or chastising them, sometimes we just need to be their friend. And I know that sounds hard because they may not be the kind of guy you want to be friends with. But we don't know why they're putting up the face that they are. Usually the most intense narcissists are the most insecure. Okay. So they attack others and put themselves in this unbelievable presentation to hide their insecurities. I think what we have to do is realize as a coach that it's very easy to put our attention on the a-hole that's out there because they do draw attention. But sometimes we have to, as a team, teach our team to say, you know what, sometimes we got a player on our squad that we can't really change. I've got somebody who I've got right now who's causing a rub with their team, but it's not because they're a bad person. It's because they're so freaking competitive. And I finally came to the solution with coach. I said, coach, you know, I think you tried everything to change this person and maybe they're unchangeable right now in their life. They may change later on. Maybe you can give them the foundation that they can start learning about themselves versus feeling bad about themselves or feeling like they're doing something wrong. So maybe we could do that. I think as players, if somebody shows us up, if somebody puts us down, it's not like we can all just go and stand up to them. That's hard. So we need to give them tools on how to deal with it. Look, you can't control it. You got to understand maybe they're in a tough spot. Maybe they need that level of arrogance to feel good about themselves. But you don't need to become their feeding zone either. So if you're in an uncomfortable or unsafe environment, just leave. Leave. But no, it's not personal because they can't form personal bonds. And sometimes educating them is really important. A lot of the actions of assholes that they do is that they do it to gain a one-upmanship psychologically. And if you can realize that if you can get them to believe it doesn't bother you, they'll leave you alone. As coaches, baseball, I think baseball is really good for having a-holes. It's bred in our game a little bit and I think that's why we all love the game is because the game has been re- listen uh, whenever I'm working with a college university and I'm like and somebody will say golly so I'm like it's a baseball team in it and they're like yep it's always the party guys it's always the fun guys everybody wants to hang out with the baseball team but let's be honest 
Usually the baseball team is the source of some of the problems in the athletic department. We all mean we're just more fun than everybody else, okay? But, my God, our roots of being assholes started with the, you know, Ty Cobb and the 1919 Black Sox. So are we that far off? The game is about, as Coach used to say, the game is about finding vagueness in the rules and exploiting them. And so it does favor the asshole. But we do need to learn how to deal with it because business and we go in life, there are assholes out there. And it's not going to be a pretty picture. So let's not paint it. Let's paint it as if there's rough waters and we can navigate it. That's the most important thing. And and real quick, I'll say this. Kevin also told me, it was another thing he said, the greatest lesson he had when he went in the NFL, after three years with the Seahawks when they were mediocre, he went to go play for the New uh, New York Jets under Bill Parcells. Bill Parcells sat up in front of the room and said, damn right, I coach Lawrence Taylor different. He's a once-in-a-generational player. If he was out the night before, I didn't punish him. I needed him on Sundays. And a couple of guys stood up and said, but that's ruining our culture. And he said, yeah, but winning also as a professional is what I need to do to build you to believe how good you can be. Now, I'm not saying winning is everything, but Parcells was using winning to get people to believe in themselves. That's pretty good, too. Okay, It's easy to look and say, Lawrence, you're not going to change Lawrence Taylor. It's what made him great was to be on edge. The gentleman was talking about being a naval aviator. There was probably naval aviators out there that were just a little bit cocky and arrogant. If you got to land on a freaking aircraft carrier in the middle of a bobbing sea, you were going to be that way too. Okay, I have a question that has come in from multiple parents. I'm going to paraphrase it because a lot of them have asked it similar. With the explosion of travel baseball and the eroding of local rec leagues, Many kids play on the weekends with and against the same players. Many travel teams step year to year when the high school and college levels are multiple age groups. How do you teach young student athletes to care about travel teams that they hop from back and forth? How do they ultimately blend in a college environment and high school environment and have a care for that program and that university and that high school? First of all, get rid of showcases. I don't know what we're doing playing games that don't have an outcome. Life has outcomes. That's just my opinion. If not, just call it a, a skills show. Then don't put it with three three outs in every inning. Just sit there and throw batting practice and put running things out. I don't understand what showcases are. That's just me being old. I think the other thing is travel ball. And let, I don't want to knock travel ball because I can see the value of it. And I know there's a lot of really excellent high school coaches on here, but there's also a lot of high school coaches out there that in some areas that may not understand the level of player that they have because they don't have that experience. So sometimes travel ball can be a nice addition to somebody who used to play the game at a high level and is down in that environment. Okay. But I do have a concern that high school sports are at risk in the next five to 10 years. Okay. And I'll just say that. And and I'd hate to see it go that way. How do we get them to buy into team? Then as our job as coaches on the travel ball, I think it's, it's learning how to win the game we're in with different people, okay, on travel ball. But then we go to the high school. What does it mean in your community? Nobody cares in your community that you won the XYZ World Series, that nobody understands from your community. But it does mean something when your local community can get behind the universe, a high school and support that high school. And that's a lifelong bond. Because that team will be together and they'll get together at reunions. I don't know many travel ball reunions that get together about winning the Kansas City Invitational. But I do know teams that get together to celebrate the Missouri State Championship of 1983. And so I think we have to, as a coach, if we coach in a high school, we have to teach them about school pride. 
We have to teach them about what it means to the community. Take them out in the freaking community and teach them why it's important to be a part of a community. You may have a superstar that is out playing awesome because when they make it to the major leagues, that entire city is going to be behind them. But take them out there and let them meet community volunteers. Take them out in the community. You don't need to take batting practice seven and a half days a week. Sometimes you can go out there and go meet the Chamber of Commerce and let your kids be seen by people and connect to the community on why it's important. So I think there's things that we can do with that to teach them more than just putting on the uniform. Now, we know that college transfer rates are at an all-time high, and so are high school transfer rates. So we have to show them as coaches is that, look, you can still win. All right? I know we all want to practice and we all want to do things and all that other stuff, but we also want to develop great players who have a great impact throughout life. And those are the kids that are going to come back to that community and open up a store, a restaurant, an insurance agency. And how are they going to remember you? You've got to sell them. Look, the greatest coaches in college sell the people on the university they're at. I just saw an amazing change at LSU. And I can see what Coach Johnson is doing immediately is refiring up an alumni base, former players that will walk through a wall for him. I never played for the man. But I feel connected to my program again. And I'm seeing it in the community. And so we as a coach need to do that and say, hey, let me show you why it's important. It's not about just a utility to get you to the next level. It's also a community. And you're representing the school and every teacher that's in the school and every person that comes before you and after you. I think a lot of times we forget as part of a legacy program is that we are representing every person who ever came before us and we're, and we're developing a better future for every person who will follow us. We should never forget the legacy of our alumni. I hate it. And, and I'll just say it. I know I'm going to get in trouble for this. This is why I was lost at my program for 10 years. The alumni wasn't connected. We felt ostracized. And you can't do that. You can't be intimidated by your alumni. You have to re- get, bring your old alumni back and meet with your team on occasion. I, don't, I doubt one alumni would ever charge you to come back and speak to the team that they were at. Find somebody in town that used to wear, don't ask them to wear the uniform or play fantasy baseball, but come back and talk to them about what it meant. I'll tell you, I went to uh, all boys school in Baton Rouge, Catholic high school, proud alum of Catholic high school. It made me who I am today with Coach Berman. Okay? If they called me tomorrow and said, I want you to come back and speak at Catholic high school, I'd be there tomorrow. Because I know what that school meant to me. I know what that school means in the community. Yeah, I want to open this up to uh, other parents that might have questions or any of the coaches. I'd also like to to open this up to the college coaches that are on here, and uh, maybe you want to ask uh, Brett a specific question or a student athlete a specific question. I still have more here on the board, but I want to open it up to somebody that may not have sent us the direct message that may want to add something to this discussion. Fire away, y'all. If not, I will continue <laughs> to read. Okay, here is our next question. Okay. How do you handle, how would you suggest that parents handle the social media instant gratification, look at me, look at me mentality that many student athletes and parents are gravitating towards? How do parents handle the truth that social media is becoming an instant gratification platform it's not becoming an instant gratification platform it is an instant gratification platform because of their algorithms and if you ever watch a three-year-old kid look at movies on an ipad they don't ever watch a movie for long they're switching and switching between youtube shows it's just built in it's cracks of the brain but we can't change it 
So what instead is I'd rather get ahead of it and teach people why it's important to understand what you're doing. What is social media good for? What are we doing in social media that we're addicted to? Okay. Look, I, there are times when I'm on the road and I'll turn on TikTok and it's two and a half hours later and I'm still laughing. Right. And I'm like, God, I should have gone to bed an hour and a half ago. But I think it's also important to teach people the value of social media. If it wasn't for social media, we wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't know any of y'all. So I think there's so many things. We just got to, we just got to be prepared for the good, the bad, the ugly of everything in life. Look, salt can kill you, but it sure tastes good on French fries. Okay. So we have to understand all that and teach our kids about it. Now, there is a social gratification aspect of it. There, it drives me nuts when I look at people in my field who are actively self-promoting with their clients in the field. They didn't do it. They may have helped. I'll never forget my roommate, Todd Walker, and God love the kid. I remember he was a three-time All-American at LSU and one of the sweetest left-handed swings ever. And I remember somebody said he's got this brand new apparatus and he said, he turned to me and he goes, I'm sure it's great. But when I make it to the major leagues, I want to make it to the major leagues because I made it and I trusted people around me that I wanted to trust. Somebody's not taking credit for my success. I've never forgotten that. And maybe also because of my dad's background, he used to say medals are for what you did in the past. You're, you're who you are is defined by what you do next. So never look for the light, always stand in the shadows. So I think we need to train our people on, and our kids and our coaches how to use social media for the good. You don't need to engage. Look, if somebody comes after me and questions me, it upsets me. It happens all the time. But I don't think we need to be, we don't need to fall into the look at me mentality. We got to remember and train our kids that if somebody puts up a video, it may be one out of 10,000, but they found the one that looks good and they made it look like it's everything. And I would tell coaches, don't look, just look at videos. So we got to not feed into that. But I think social media can do a lot of good. Where else can you interact with this many people in a great night and talk about something so important? Okay, our next question. It's rather lengthy, but I'll put Let's it on it. there. On the topic of high school baseball, what happens when a no-good coach? This is probably, I don't want to, okay, I saw this. No, this is probably not something I want to bring up. Basically, I'm going to paraphrase. When you have a high school coach that is a dream squasher, yep. who is not a, a influencer or a mentor or a positive influence on a student athlete, how should A, a parent, interact with that coach or more importantly what does the student athlete need to do to navigate mm. that type of coach okay so i'll say this just like in anything in life there are some people who are in their job who shouldn't be in their job or don't take it and respect it or don't know what they're doing and unfortunately i'm sure there are pilots that way i know there's physicians that way there are nurses that way there are doctors or psychologists there's coaches okay there are people at every end of the spectrum of good bad and ugly okay that being said one thing I never like my, play, my parents to tell players to is go talk to your coach and fight for your playing time. Really? I, to this day, if I went in to see coach, I'd still be nervous. Okay? That's a hard conversation when you're 14 years of age to go talk to a 48-year-old man. Okay? But we have to understand that sometimes the best thing we need to do is endure the shitstorm we're in. And we can make it. And, I, and I'll say this. My sophomore year in high school – I was still undersized and still ungrown, and I was a pitcher and a catcher. Man, what a great combination. But every game in the summer, 
I caught batting practice before the game for two hours in the heat of South Louisiana. That meant I wasn't going to play in every game. I wasn't going to play in any games. I pitched in four games in the entire summer. And I wanted to quit every damn day. And my dad was like, you made a commitment, you stick with it. The next year, I had to play junior varsity again. And that summer league coach was my coach over the summer. And that summer, then I became one of the big guys. And when I was playing at LSU, I remember they interviewed him after I was done playing. And we'd have a bunch of kids from my program play at LSU. And we said, and I'll never forget it. They said, who's the guy that you're most impressed with? And he was like, Brett McCabe, because there were times when he was a sophomore, he was our batting practice catcher in the middle. He, he never gave up. He learned how to do it. I hated that man. I hated him. I came to really respect him and understand him as I got older and I got a little wiser. I was serving a role on the team. There was no promise I was going to play. I hadn't earned the right to play just because I thought I could do better. So I think as a parent, we got to help them manage. Just like when we have a bad boss, sometimes we have to change jobs. And if that means we get to a point that we can't handle the situation because it is that unmanageable, that sometimes we need to remove ourselves from that situation. And in today's world, you do have travel ball as an alternative. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think somebody should stick out in an abusive situation. That being said, I, do, I also think that we can't always get where we want. Sometimes we need to learn to be the player that's, that's getting screwed and because we will get screwed in life. And I'm not saying that is like everybody needs to suck up and deal with it. I'm saying there are times in our life, sometimes our situations for four months absolutely suck. We got to endure it. And then, but we got to have a frame of mind to say, I can handle this. I can handle this. And I think that's important. And there may be something that says, okay, if that coach is not going to promote me, I wasn't promoted by my high school coach. He promoted another kid. And I'll never forget sitting down with Coach Burtman. He said, that other kid will never pitch a day at the school he was going to. I promise by the time you leave, you will dwarf him in what you've done. I'm sure my coach thought he was doing the right thing. I used it as motivation. But I, I don't have a bad relationship with my coach now. I just don't think he knew. And maybe I never sat down and actually told him, Hey, coach, I want to go play college baseball. Maybe I'd never done that. I think, I think we have to deal with bad bosses. We have to deal with bad coworkers. We have to be, and so it's a great way to learn to deal with it. And then when you can't deal with it anymore, before it impacts your negative mental health or anything like that, let's move on somewhere. Let's find an alternative. And in today's world, you can play travel ball instead of playing team ball, school ball. Okay, this is a question that has been asked 27 times in 27 different ways. Can you ask Brett what, how you would handle when kids that play multiple sports are told by coaches there is no offseason and they're basically put, put their student-athletes and you hold them hostage? How do you handle that coach that tells them you can't play multiple sports, there's no such thing as an offseason? Yeah, it's a pet peeve of mine because I hear college coaches say all the time, we want to recruit multi-sport players, but then they get a freshman to commit who's a specialist player. Okay. I hear high school coaches say all the time, we want our players to play multiple sports, but then they don't give. And then all of a sudden it's like, you're at baseball, you're at baseball practice. You're not playing football. How are you going to know the offense? It's like coaches, come on. We have got to be better for our kids. If our kids want the experience of playing multiple sports, you know what? Sometimes they can do it. Sometimes they can. And they may learn more by playing another sport. It can't be about us coaches. There's very few places where coaches are paid to win. And that's, that's college, but really elite college and the major leagues. Not even the minor leagues. 
High school, yes, we want to win, but we also want to develop players. It drives me nuts when I see high school football coaches, and I'll say it, I'm pissing some off by saying this, who were like, no, I need my kids for 10 months a year. Why? They don't even do that in the NFL. Why do you need to do it in high school? You can give your kids the opportunity and train them two to three days a week instead of seven. Give them the chance to go learn and play other sports so they can learn what it's like to maybe not be the superstar. But lo and behold, they may actually find something they really like and are really good at. Maybe when you're a senior, you may have to specialize. Maybe if you're an elite junior. But listen, if you don't want to risk getting your arm broken, go run cross country. It's not a bad sport to do in the fall. It wasn't for me. No way in hell I was going to do it. But I think it's a good one. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think that we look at, I think there's a lot of talking out of both sides of the mouth when it comes to this. And we've got to support each other as coaches. And I can't guarantee that my coach across town, who's my biggest rival, is going to not make our, their kids specialize. But I can put my head down at night and know who in the hell I am. And if that means I've got a kid who is playing multiple sports, then let me support that kid because there may be an attribute that kid brings to this team and teaches 10 other players on my team something even better. We had multi-sport players at LSU. The current GM of the Carolina Panthers was our closer. He played football and baseball. They figured it out. We can do that. Shouldn't have given me a mic, Walter. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I just thought that I have quite parents be just besieging me with questions, but I know that, Jason, you want to ask a question. So fire away while we have Brett here. We have uh, nine minutes left just to let everybody Hey, know. look, and, and I'll tell you, if you want to, I wrote a really great book called Break Free from Suckville. I would love for you all to check it out on my website. Okay, can you re- repeat that? And I'm yeah. going to put that on the Twitter. Please. It's called Break Free from Suckville. And it's on my website, brettmccabe.com. That's B-H-R-E-T-M-C-A-B-E.com. And it's a great book for dealing with the BS, the struggles, and the difficulties of today's life. That's why I wrote it, because 90% of the people who come in and see me are struggling. And we can work through it. And we don't have to take it personally. I want to add one thing. Before tonight, Walter didn't really have any experience uh, you know, with, with your content. He allowed me to, to, to mention your book in, the, in there because I knew the quality of person you are and the quality of content that, that, that you produce. Walter, you would agree was well worth including his book and ours? First of all, my son knows Brett. Oh, really? I, a delicate, this was a delicate topic for me tonight as a dad. But I felt, in light of some current events that we're dealing with, I felt it was really a tremendous opportunity for parents and student-athletes to listen to Brett. And all I can tell you is the one thing as a dad that I never gave a thought to was the mental component to being a student-athlete in today's world and the burden of expectation. My son was the only member of the 2011 draft class to say, no, I'm going to go to college. And social media unleashed the worst barrage of words, comments, videos, direct messages. My son was 17 years old. 
he carried that burden at Vanderbilt for three years. Did I make the right decision? Did I make a wrong decision? Should I have signed? Would I be in the big leagues today if I had signed? And I never recognized the significance of the mental component of being a student athlete in today's world. So for me as a parent, this is a tremendous, tremendous discussion that we had. And I couldn't recommend a book. I will be telling people through perpetuity. I will <laughs> be telling you. people to make sure they find their way. to. I will absolutely share it with my son. But I remember watching you pitch in that College World Series. I remember sitting at my television and watching that game. Now, I lived in Louisiana for six years. I lived in the heart. I can hear I the accent. I, I can catch the Cajun accent. <laughs> <laughs> But my point is, is this has been absolutely tremendous. Thank you. Break free from Suckville. I think if you don't have, this should be an absolute must get for any parent or student athlete to take with you, read and reread. One thing that my son said to me three weeks ago that has basically been etched in my soul was parents, dad, you never understood what I was dealing with in the moment. I was not only carrying your expectation, my town's expectations, my family's expectations, every single time I took the mound and I couldn't suck. And I tried as hard as I could not to disappoint. So for me, I would want my son to not only run on broken glass to find his way to you, but I would encourage every single parent that found their way to this, this Twitter space, or when you listen to it tomorrow, when we post the lit, the rebroadcast, Thank you. put a piece of Brett in your home so that you have access to him via that book. That's how powerful the message he brought tonight in my opinion and i'm sure that parents and student athletes are are feeling just as strongly as that and one of the things that we're getting so many questions and i don't want to keep brett because obviously 90 minutes is more than we can we can ever hold well we can keep going if you want to well (laughs) we can do it another time we can do it another time too you know i'd love to do this on another absolutely because i think it's it's unfair for us to take that upon you for 90 minutes but i want to first say from every fiber of my being i thank you because the things that i wrote down i became a better dad a better coach a better person tonight after listening to this twitter space and it is a very powerful message that you have put forth for us tonight both from parents perspective as well as student athletes and i hope that parents and student athletes can understand it's okay to feel down. I'm certainly not going to speak for Brett, but I I want, this is the one question I want to end this discussion with because it's been asked several times. And I just want you to answer this as simply as you can. Student athletes today dealing with relationships at the high school level and the interactions between family and potential girlfriends, relationships, the best way to put that. How does a student athlete deal with all that emotion 
and all that goes with those relationships, both in their household and in their with the, their significant others, I guess is a polite way to say that, and, and take that and get away from that on the ball field. That's the one question that a lot of parents and student athletes have asked me in the last 10 minutes. They did a great movie called All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise, didn't they, with Leah Thompson? I loved that movie about how to deal with those relationships. But isn't that what life is? It's about understanding how to manage many different desires. And look, I don't think we can also ignore the fact that 16, 17, and 18, we're also finding what we're attracted to and connected to. And in that, we have to learn what's important for us. I will say this, the the young girl I dated before my wife taught me what I wanted in a wife, and I found her. And so if it wasn't for that experience, I would have never found my wife and and, and appreciated what I had in my life. And I think it's the game. You know, There are people in times that they're going to get distracted away from what they need to do, but they're going to find their way through that because eventually that's part of the learning of life. I want to say this too. The reason why this means so much to me is there are sports is oftentimes many times a window into the, and who we are. And through athletics, we're fortunate enough to learn some skills on a faster level to teach the depths of our own psyche. I had a student athlete and I'm not going to go into the sport, but a student athlete who really was a, super talented athlete like future professional and going to make millions of dollars and this young athlete hated the game and perceived that the family was all in it for them and this player had gotten to the point of being very despondent very suicidal and when I started working with this player what we realized was the parents weren't actually putting a lot of pressure on them. They put normal pressure on them like any parent would. They were wanting to see them succeed. But once we got the player to acknowledge what was going on and had a conversation with the family, the parents were like, what if that's what you want to do? We're all in on you that we just want you to be happy and healthy. Now we can look at that and say, oh, what a waste of this opportunity. But no, what a great opportunity that sports taught them through some pain what truly made that person happy. And they didn't walk away from the sport that they loved and they were good at. Yeah, they were talented at it, but it doesn't matter how talented they were. The sport taught them what made them tick. That is a gift. I do what I do because sports is an avenue that I hopefully that someone I teach, someone I coach, someone I work with 10 years from now may be struggling in their life and will be able to turn to somebody because they trusted somebody like me. And they'll find somebody like Brian. They'll find somebody like some of my colleagues that have been on this, this space tonight. And they'll say, you know what? I need a licensed professional. I need somebody who knows what they're doing. And I'm not afraid to ask for help. That's why we have relationships like we have, coach. And that's why those come in. As a coach, as a dad, sometimes love interests come in and they distract them for a while. But, but through distractions, we find our path sometimes. And so as parents, we have to be careful to not look. They've written books about us preventing love interest. Yeah, Romeo and Juliet did not win, did not go well for anybody. Okay. Let's teach them the boundaries. Let's not restrict them. Let's teach them how to manage all those things because that's what life's going to be about. And this is a microcosm. We can go take care of your business, then you can have your fun. Okay? And teach them how to manage that is great. And I'll say this too. This is a great honor. I'm blown away by this response. I had no idea that, that it would be like this. And 
touched and I'm honored, but I'm also humbled because this isn't about me. This is about what we can all do to coach and leader youth in baseball, softball, and all the different facets to become better human beings and what we're doing in the game. As coach used to say, we use baseball vernaculars all the time to describe life. It's today's business ventures, a can of corn. Yeah, I got that. It's a pop fly. It's an infield fly. It's all those things. Baseball is the, the only sport that we really fly through the air. When we look across the flyover states, we can spot the diamond from 35,000 feet in the air. It's a diamond because it's symmetrical, but it can't be broken by anything. And that's what the game teaches us. It teaches lifelong values. It taught me to become a psychologist. It defined my relationship with my father, who was the greatest hero I had in my life. My mom and my dad are the greatest people who have ever influenced me. And baseball was a thread of what we did. But it taught me who I was. If it wasn't for baseball, I don't know what I'd be doing right now. And so anytime I can talk about the game with people who love the game, it reminds me of my relationship with my dad, and I appreciate that. That gives me more joy and love than you guys can ever imagine, so I thank you for that. I appreciate, we appreciate both Butch, Brian, and myself, all three of us, tremendously proud and honored that you took the time to speak with us tonight. I would be absolutely blown away if you would be able to join us in January when we start back up. Sure. We're going to have a few more weeks, and then we know it's the holidays, but we'd love to have you to kick off the baseball season in January. I've gotten probably over a hundred responses from parents to say, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure you're going to get a lot of books that will be going out the door. And I just want to say thank you again. And I do hope that those that took the time to listen, have the the ability to get in touch with you in whatever professional capacity. And you can, you can reach me on my website. and, And I will say this too. The book is there because the book was written to help people solve a problem. It's a problem that I think is important is that I don't want people to think they're struggling and suck anymore. We're all freaking amazing people. Let's shine on who we are. Okay. We don't have to be perfect, but damn it, let's be who we are and be the best version of ourselves. And that's what's important. So that's why the book is so important to me. Amen. Exclamation point. And I'll give you one go, Tiger. Damn. I also have to say roll tide now because I'm a, the guy at Alabama. So I do love my roll tiders. Ouch. Okay. I know. I got to. I love them. I love them. But I can cheer for both. Again, I want to say thank you to everybody that joined us tonight, particularly Brett. Thank you very much. We had Major League current players, former players. We had head coaches of Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three programs, JUCO programs. We had parents, and we had lots of student athletes. So I want to say thank you to everybody. If you have a question that you want to introduce or get – for me to relay to Brett, I'm happy to act as an intermediate if I need to. Next week, we're going to have a couple major league athletes that are going to join us, and we're going to be talking specifically about throwing athletes. We're going to have a couple of high-level former college players. Hopefully, a special guest will be able to join us. We're working on that. Again, next week is going to be about throwing athletes. Hint, hint. And it also will revolve around all positions, not just pitching. So I want to say thank you to everybody that joined us tonight. And we look forward to next Monday night at 9 p.m.